Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey man, good morning. How are you? All right, let's get to it. Romans chapter 7 is where we are again. We looked at the second half of Romans last week as we're working through this text and we We've got a little bit more work to do in the second half of Romans chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. And I'm going to read Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 again this week. And then we're going to work through it here in in just a moment. And and then we're going to look at, we're going to reflect on on what this text is, is saying to us. Lord willing, personally. And we were in this text last week, but what we did last week was a kind of hover, it was a kind of flyover of the major views of the theological debate that is the second half of Romans chapter 7. So Romans 7 is this really well-known passage that speaks about autobiographically where Paul is referring to himself in the singular, I, he says the word I or me or my over 40 times in those few verses, and he's talking about this great struggle with sin that he has. And the debate through the centuries has been, is Paul referring to himself before his conversion? In other words, is this struggle not characteristic of the Christian life? Or is he referring to himself after his conversion? In other words, is this struggle that he refers to in Romans chapter 7 something that at times does characterize the Christian life? So last week we we hovered over the text and looked at the major reasons for each of the views. We landed on, at least I, well you may not have, at least I landed on the view that I think that Paul, the balance of the evidence, would show us through the centuries the history of faithful interpretation and I think some clues in the text. Would point, to, would point me personally to lean towards and, and, and really believe the view that Paul is speaking about the struggle that is part of the Christian life. And so that, that's where we ended last week. But I don't want us to just hover over the text. I want us to actually work through it. So we're going to do that, uh, hopefully kind of quickly, and then we're going we're gonna to try and apply the text to ourselves. So let me read Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 again and then pray, and we'll we'll roll up our sleeves and and get into it. So remember, uh, Romans is, by the way, I can't wait to get to Romans chapter 8 next week. It's going to be, we've been in Romans 7 for a while, and Romans chapter 8 is glorious. I think it's the peak of Mount Everest of the scriptures. It is, I think, the, well, I think it's just the greatest chapter ever written, Um, and I'm just looking forward to it. Uh, Romans 7 has been like um, digging a ditch, but it's good. It builds our muscle. So let's, let's read Romans 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, well let me pray, and this morning after we get done looking at God's Word, we're going to come to the table as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month, and we're going to come around and receive communion together as a faith family, and even as we're, we've been singing and praying, and, and even now as we look at God's Word, uh, I pray that the Lord would prepare our hearts for the table, and if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're born again, you're welcome to come to this table with us and to remember what God has done through His Son Jesus to free us from the tyranny of sin and from the law, which is good and holy, but that we could never that we could never fully obey. And so we're going to come to the table and, and revel in the joy of the gospel. Let me, let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for this text, for the great privilege to gather together on this first Sunday of February. Lord, every person in this room has a marred, incomplete vision to some degree. We do not see in 2020, spiritually speaking. So we pray, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that, we might, that you might give us the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of your Son, that we might see the hope of our calling and what is the riches of the inheritance of the saints and the power that you work towards us, the same power that raised Christ from the dead for our sins. And Lord, there are certainly some people in this room who are spiritually blind. I pray that you would open their eyes by your sovereign grace, that you would cause them and enable them to see Jesus and to turn from trusting in themselves and put all of their hope in him. I pray that you'd do this for your glory and the joy of your people and the salvation of any in this room who came in not knowing you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's just work through this text, and then we'll, we'll conclude with some, some application. Verse 14, and remember, I, before I begin working through this, remember one of the last points that I made last week in this debate about whether or not this text is written to about Paul as a believer or Paul as an unbeliever. I, again, I, I think that the better understanding of it is that Paul is speaking of the 
Christian experience to some degree, but that should not cause us to think that this text doesn't speak to to, to all people. This text applies to you, to me, to anybody in this room, wherever they may be, spiritually speaking. And so as we work through it, there's, there's truth, there's enormous amounts of truth in this for believers and for anybody in this room who is not yet a Christian. So verse 14, he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, now that phrase, sold under sin, at the end of verse 14 is one of the reasons why historically many people think that this text is, is applicable only to unbelievers because as the line of thinking goes, how can a believer who has been purchased by God, who has been redeemed by God, and, and that's much of what's going on in Romans chapter 6, somebody who has been freed from the tyranny of sin, how can that phrase, sold under sin, apply to to a true believer. And I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Certainly that, that statement is true. But I think what is happening here, if we see this as Paul speaking as a believer, is that subjectively this, this battle that still rages with sin is something that, that will certainly cause believers at times to varying degrees to still be, even though they are free, to still be dealing with their prior captivity. Here's a picture for you to kind of illustrate this for you. In John chapter 11, when, Je- when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, and I know I refer to that story a lot. I think it's, a, it's an incredible picture of how salvation works. Jesus comes. Lazarus is dead. He's so dead that he stinks. His flesh is decomposing. He's been wrapped in burial cloth, and he's there on the, I guess, the stone tablet in the cave, and Jesus tells him to get up. I think that's a picture of regeneration. I think that's a picture of how the new birth works. God, through Jesus, Jesus, God the Son, his authority over life and death makes Lazarus alive, and then Jesus tells him to get up, The stone rolls away, Lazarus comes out, and even though he's alive, he's still, in a sense, kind of bound by these these grave linens, right? And what does Jesus tell? He tells the other people around him, unwrap him, loose him. And that's, the I think, what's going on here in verse 14. We, We are free, but we're not yet fully free. We're still, in a sense, dealing with this former captivity that we've been released from. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. I think this is autobiographical for everybody in this room. Isn't it? I mean, just, I don't understand. What am I doing? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Friends, this should just be a kind of, um, kind of ammonia to us to help wake us up and to to just orient us to the, to, the, to the disorder of sin, to the illogic nature of sin. There is no logic to this, this sin that still besets us. It disorders, it fractures, it unravels our lives. And it causes us to not even understand what we're doing or why we're doing it. And, and I'm going to get to this here in a second, but I, I think that should produce a tremendous amount of humility, not only... only as we look at ourselves, but as we, as we look at other people. Nobody can fold their arms in disgust at other people and look down the end of their nose at them because th- this is autobiographical. It's not, I don't understand your actions, <laughs> which is often the case. We can say that to one another, can't we? 
But first we must say, I, I don't understand my own actions oftentimes. Verse 16, now, I do, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 17 is really important. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul is not, he's not detaching himself from culpability here. He's not saying, oh, the devil made me do it, or oh, it's sin and there's no, no power I have. That's not what the gospel gives us. Not We do have, we're going to get into that in Romans chapter 8. Praise God, there is a Romans chapter 8 after a Romans chapter 7. But what, I, what he's bringing us into here is this kind of, this certain, and we've got to be careful here, but this certain duality of the Christian life. That in one sense, clearly, that we have a new identity, but we are still dealing with our old identity. So we are made new, we've come up out of the baptismal waters, so to speak, and we are a new creature in Christ Jesus, but our old self is wanting to get his head up above the water and to breathe again, and much of the Christian life is the new man keeping his foot on the throat of the old man so that he stays underwater. That's the battle that all of us are in. And some people, I think out of earnestness, have a kind of over-triumphalistic view of the Christian life as if to be saved is to be immediately sanctified. Now, in one sense, we, we are, but in another sense, we are becoming who we shall be and already are. Do you see the, the kind of duality there? Martin Luther in the Reformation, uh, I think, is the one that coined this phrase in Latin, and I'm glad it's in Latin because Luther's native tongue was German, but they would write in Latin at the time, and I certainly couldn't pronounce this if it was in German. But he came up with a phrase in Latin that became a, a kind of a truth, a, a kind of synthesizing truth in the Reformation, and, and it is this. Well, we'll have it up on the screen there in Latin. Simil justus et peccador. That means, we can even see the traces of our English language there, simultaneously. At the same time, just and sinful. So there's this kind of duality in the Christian life. Now, of clearly, our, our, our identity is that we are in Christ. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. Let's not forget Romans 6. That we have been united with him in his death and his resurrection. So, dear, dear Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus... You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. But that does not, in a kind of, what's the, I always get in trouble when I refer to sci-fi shows. Is it, is it, what's the one where they beam me up, Scotty? What is that? Star Trek? Yeah, okay, I get in trouble. I'm going to get mocked by all of the millennials now. Sanctification is not, in one sense, we are beamed up, Scotty. Ephesians 1 says that we have been seated in heavenly places with Christ. But in another sense, we're, we're still here. We are justified. We can be no more loved by God at any time in the past, present, or future. It's not like we progress into more justification, more righteousness. Christ's righteousness has been given to us, but the Christian life is 
is becoming who we already are. It's dealing with our old nature, which has already been defeated, but we have to actually fight. Friends, that's, that's the battle of sanctification. And verse, verse 20, which we'll read in just a second, says essentially the same thing. There's this kind of tension in the Christian life. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Of course, we're going to read in just a moment. Well, not just a moment, in a few weeks. In Romans chapter 8, where Paul will say that if, the, if you're a believer, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So we understand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that there's nothing good at all in a Christian. He, he's, he's focusing on this remaining aspect of the residual of sin that must be fought. For I know that nothing good in and of myself dwells in me. Anything good in me, and we're going to see that in Romans 8, is Christ in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so even after we become Christians... Even though God has given us a new heart and new desires, that's the first evidence of a, of, a, of a true believer, that we have new desires, not perfected desires, that we, we still have to trust in God. We have to depend on God for our sanctifications. That's what Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13 is all about. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to work his good pleasure in you. And so... Sanctification is not a kind of human-centered effort after we've received the grace of the gospel. Salvation is one-handed. God saves us. And then sanctification is two-handed. We wrestle with God that's working in us to produce His will in us. That's what the Christian life... But, but notice here, I think, I think if you are not yet a believer in Jesus, and maybe you were just invited by somebody to come to church today, or maybe you, you're just struggling with what it means to be a Christian, you need to see the second half of verse 18. It says, I desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. That's, that's true of you. Christianity is not self-improvement. You can never make yourself good enough. Romans 8, verse 7, Paul says that the human heart is hostile to God. It cannot obey God's law. So if you have heard in a false way that the message of Christianity is a kind of message of self-improvement, you've heard a false gospel. The, the good news is only good because it comes after the very bad news. We're not just neutral and then there's some good news. We are fallen. We're lost. Our, our hearts are against God. They're contrary to God. They are they are separated from God. They're dead in their sins. But God, when he saves a person, gives them a new heart. He does what they cannot do, and he makes them alive and enables them, which is what Romans 8 is all about, to actually live for him. So, so I want to say to you, if you're, you're an, the, the really good news of the gospel is that you can't do it. Embrace that, actually, and see the freedom in that. That, that's, that's great news. You can't do it, but God can. And if, you, if you're aware of that, I think that's, that's like evidence that God is actually giving you the very thing that he requires of you, which is a new heart. That's good news. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, we see this duality. Shouldn't these verses humble us? Shouldn't they? So, verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Um, it's beginning of the year, so maybe you've started out in your Bible reading plan and recently you read, was it Genesis 4, I think it is, around there, where Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and his sacrifice, and the Lord speaks to Cain and he says, be careful, sin is crouching at your door. And I, I think that's a, a kind of statement about how the enemy prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour Evil lies close at hand. Don't, don't we all feel that? Can we, just, can we just kind of acknowledge that? That even the most mature of us feel this, the weight of this verse, that evil lies. None of us get to a point where we are past temptation. In fact, this is a kind of seeming paradox of the Christian life. It seems like maybe at times the more mature you get, the higher the stakes, and at times the more difficult it is to obey God. Is, is, am I the only like really tangled up Christian? Or are there others? Okay, four of you. Thank you. Praise God. <laughs> we'll meet for lunch after church. But do, do you see this? I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Again, friends, I think the effect of this should be to cause us to be sober-minded that's why we can't just fly through Romans 7 and see it as a, kind of, as a kind of text that we just want to analyze for theological views. We have to feel this text because it, the, the purpose, and we're going to get to this in, the, in a moment, I think the purpose of Romans 7 is to show us what reality is of spiritual war and to produce in us a kind of never-ending dependence. You don't arrive out of utter dependence on Jesus. There's no, there's no higher plane in Christianity where you get to a point where you're no longer JV, but you're varsity. In fact, there's a kind of paradox that the more mature you get, the more humble and the more dependent you are, and the more despairing of yourself you are, and the more watchful and sober you are. I think that's what's going on here. Evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And by the way, I think that's one of the clues that this text is about Christians. How can an unbeliever delight in the law of God? I think, I think Paul's giving us a clue here that, that this is characteristic of the Christian life because Christians alone, because they've been given a new heart, can delight in the law of God in our inner being. Verse 23, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Okay, now let's, re let's read verse 23 again. And, and when we see this up to this point, when we've, see, when we've seen this word law in Romans chapter 7, we, we've thought about the law of God, and, and rightly so. But in verse 23 here, you can see Paul in his figures of speech here is using another law, and I think by that he means a kind of principle. 
a principle of sin, our old sin nature that wages war against us, this principle of, of evil. So look at verse 23 again. But I see in my members another law, not God's law, this law of sin and death, waging war against the law of my mind. In other words, this renewed mind that I have in Christ, now led by the spirit of the law of life. So there's this old principle of my sin nature that's dead but still trying to rear its ugly head, waging war, waging war, just that phrase right there should be instructive, against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Friends, verse 23 is so raw and realistic. Isn't it? That that's where much of the Christian life is lived. In one sense, I delight in God, but in another sense, I find myself helpless. What is God's purpose in all of this? To develop in us utter dependence on God. We are not just saved by grace, we are sanctified by grace. We are not just born again by the Spirit, we are continually renewed by the Spirit until the day that the Spirit ushers us into the presence of God, which is death or Jesus' return. And then we get to verse 24 where we, we're just in utter futility crying out to God, wretched man that I am. I mean, that, 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 that's a sentence we don't ever want to get past. Now, we don't in one sense want to be this kind of, you know, I used to watch um, Popeye, the Sailor Man cartoon. Remember the guy, Wimpy, that always wanted hamburgers? I'm, I've lost about 75% of you now. You're like, no. <laughs> Anybody born out here? And Wimpy just always kind of, just kind of mealy-mouthed, somber. Nobody wanted to be around him. All he just, you know. That's not what verse 24 should be producing us, a kind of pessimistic, woes-me, perpetual dreariness. No, in another sense, though, the... This verse 24 should produce in us. It should always kind of be running in our minds. There's nothing. A wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of death? We shouldn't get past that question. If we do, we have gospel amnesia. That's why we need to gather together every week. Because we're prone to forget where verse 24 has us. We get confident in ourselves. We, We think we've got this. But verse 24 reminds us, oh wretched man, that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We don't get past that. Again, we're not dreary, somber-minded, woes me, there's no hope for me. That's not the gospel. But we don't forget the gospel and get over-triumphalistic as if we've got this. We always have this tension In our lives where we need verse 25 to be our only hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then look at the second half of verse 25. We got into this briefly last week. And I think this is really instructive. And I think this is why. This is the best reason. This is the strongest reason. This is the most persuasive reason why I think Romans chapter 7 verse 25 through 14 through 25 is referring to a Christian. Because look at the second half of verse 25. He says, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's more struggle. So if... 
follow with me here logically, if in verses 14 through 24, Paul is speaking about the struggle of an unbeliever before they come to Christ, and then in the first part of verse 25, we have the victory of salvation, and now in that view, according to that view, there shouldn't be that type of struggle anymore in the Christian life because Jesus has freed you from it, then we would expect the second half of verse 25 to be triumphalistic and to go straight into verse, uh, chapter 8, which is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not where Paul takes it, surprisingly. He says, you've been struggling, verses 14 through 24. You've been saved. The only way you can be saved is through Jesus. He's made you new. He rescued you from this. And even after the rescue, you have more of the struggle that we were just talking about. You, you, you want to serve God with your mind, and in a sense you're doing that, but you're still struggling with serving the law of the flesh and sin. Do you see that? So there's, there's more struggle after the victory of 725a. I think that's really, really instructive. I think the triumph of the cross does not nullify the war. I think it actually makes it possible. We couldn't fight before, but now we can. And that's why sometimes people that right after they come to faith in Jesus are more miserable than they were before. Why is that? Because now they're actually alive and they feel the weight of their sin. And now they are like woken up to the struggle that is the Christian life. Now I know this is messing with some of you that watch TBN where you just think that we can just kind of, everything's going to be awesome. But that's a false gospel. That's a lie straight from the pits of hell. This I think is the biblical version of the Christian life. And I think all of this, we maybe, I don't have this as a point, let me just, just throw this in because it just popped in my mind before we end this thing with these reflections, is you may be asking, why would God even allow this to happen? Why doesn't he just beam me up, Scotty? Why doesn't he just cancel? Just, just, just let's fast forward. Skip through the commercials. Let's just get to the end, right? Let, let's, just, let's just, you know, when they, it was that couple in Texas that makes me so mad. I love them, but I'm just jealous of them. I'm, they're Chip and Joanna again. Let's just skip to the. Let's skip to the end when they pull the thing apart. We just see the house, and it's awesome. Why can't we just be sanctified? Well, the reason why is because God leaves us here to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, so that our lives be kind of become a kind of illustration of the preferability of Christ over and against this world. That's the Christian life. It's meant to be in a kind of aroma of Christ that is a display to an onlooking world. That's the purpose of this church. That's the purpose of your life. So, so four pastoral reflections on Romans 7, 14 through 25 briefly, and then we're going to come to the table. The first is this. Number one, the, I am so encouraged by this. The Bible is utterly in touch with reality. And that's what I love about Romans 7. The Bible is utterly in touch with the reality of our rugged, hard life. The Bible is relevant, it's eminently practical. It's not merely a list of religious stories and requirements. Yes, there are different genres of Scripture. 
Yes, the Old Testament reads differently, much of it, than the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have this picture of God's dealing with humanity and his work through one people, ethnic Israel, that he brought out of one man that becomes a kind of picture and shadow of the true people of God in the New Testament, which is the church, true Israel. And his dealings with them become a kind of picture of salvation, and much of it is historical narrative. But even that, as we're reading about the ridiculous sinfulness and unfaithfulness of his people, we still see a God who is faithful to his people. And isn't the story of Israel the story of every individual Christian? He saved us not because we're good. He loves us not because we are better than the other nations or other people. He loves us because he loves us. I mean, you have a family that God decided to make into a nation through which he would display his goodness to a world, and they are a mess. And then in the New Testament, we have the picture of Jesus in his life and ministry in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to give us a picture of how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament law for us and then lays down his life as a sacrifice for all those that would turn and trust because this law in the Old Testament was a picture of God's holiness and with that picture of God's holiness came requirements and justice and God cannot turn his eye on sin. He must judge it to maintain his holiness and Jesus is the only one. He's the only true Israelite that can obey God's law perfectly and the gospels give us a picture of how Jesus has done that, how he lived, how he died, and how he rose again. And then the rest of the New Testament, which is Paul's epistles and some other general epistles, are applications, explanations of how that gospel applies to you and me. And what I love about it is it is so in touch with the mess of our lives. The Bible is utterly relevant and it presents a God whose arm is not too short and whose ear is not dull to save wicked, hopeless sinners like us. <laughs> Praise God. And we ha- Don't we have to detox from Bible Belt Christianity, nominal cultural Christianity? where we think we're pretty much okay because we're middle-class Americans or maybe because we grew up in a church in the South, that will lull you to sleep and it will damn you to hell. But the gospel is the great news that all are wicked at the foot of the cross and all are in the same need of Jesus' saving grace. And it is, it is not by our works, but by Christ's works that we're saved. Point number two. We've got into this a little bit. Sanctification is a spiritual war. Salvation, regeneration, the new birth, makes spiritual war possible, not a thing of the past. Look, in fact, just to kind of show you this in the text, we just talked about a second ago. Look, look if you get your Bibles open to Romans chapter 7, look, look at Romans chapter 6, verse 20 where Paul says something really interesting. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now that's a strange sentence. What does he mean by you were free in regard to righteousness? You were a slave to sin, and during that time when you were a slave to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What he means by that 
is that when your heart was dead and you were in sin, you didn't really care about God's claim on your life or the fact that you were offending him because your heart was dead. You, you didn't have the capacity to feel true conviction. Now, for self-absorbed human idolatrous reasons, you may have felt a kind of conviction, but it wasn't, it wasn't a Holy Spirit-infused conviction, conviction. All it was was a kind of sorrow for how your life wasn't all that you wanted it to be. But the mark of a true believer is that they've been given a new heart. Jesus died for them. He rose again. He made you alive. And he actually made your heart now go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh that can feel that is now aware of God's holiness and righteousness. And now conviction is real. And now it seems like you're even more of a mess up than you were before. And all of that, friends, is kind of evidence of the new birth in a strange, paradoxical, glorious sort of way. Do you see that? And now you're in the middle of fighting the spiritual battle. And oh, we could take a bunch of time, and we won't. You're happy about that. We could take a bunch of time talking about how we fight this war. And we do that all the time. We sprinkle it into application with God's word, with an understanding of the gospel, with an understanding of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and in the context of life together in the local church. In fact, that's what we're going to do here in just a minute. When we come around this table, this is not mere, a mere personal spiritual discipline. We're, we're coming around a table, a family table, and that's why I think being part of a local church, being a member of a local church is so important because we're coming around the table and we're saying, is everybody here for dinner? How's, how's Joey? How's Susie? How's Tony? I'm giving you all these Italian names. I'm sorry. <laughs> Mikey, Carlo, forget it. How? How, how are, and so we have this kind of corporate responsibility for one another, which is part of how God intends for us to fight the war. Yeah, yes, that's, that's true. I'm getting encouraged by, by this point myself. I need you, I need you, I need you. You need me, we need each other. Three. We can view other, as a result of what we've been seeing here in Romans chapter 7 and how sanctification is utterly real and rugged and hard, but the gospel's true and all of this. We, we can, in, in light of that, we can view other people with bold grace. Now, I want to just, I want to add some more words to that sentence. I want to say we can view other people with bold, fierce, compassionate optimistic, God-centered grace. Because let's not just let this apply to us. Let's not let Romans 7 apply to us merely and give us a kind of grace for our struggle. We, we, we only go halfway if we do that. If we read Romans 7 and we say, oh, this is, this is a balm for my weary soul. This explains so much of why I am the way I am. And I hope that's an application that you're making in your heart right now. And I hope it doesn't give you, if that gives you a license for sin, if it gives us a license to fall back into sin, we've misinterpreted it. But let's even go further. We should then push that application out to other people. Romans 7 and the struggle that it brings us into doesn't just apply to you. It applies to other people too. And so that should produce in us a kind of 
Ah, a kind of gentle. You know what? American Christians are hard on each other. We're cranky, mean-spirited often, aren't we? And I'm not talking about cross points specifically. I'm just a, a generalization. And I think this current political climate, climate has actually made it worse. And I think we're letting the spirit of the age inform our spirit as Christians. Amen. Amen. That was a lot better than you guys let on. <laughs> we're mean-spirited often, aren't we? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Weight of Glory, about how we should view one another as a result of the gospel. This is, a, this is a beautiful quote. It's a little lengthy. And I've read little sermon preaching books where they say, don't read lengthy quotes to your people because they can't hang with it. They don't have a good attention span. Oh, fooey. This is what Lewis says. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And don't, don't be thrown by that language. That's C.S. Lewis back in the 1930s or 40s speaking about the image of God. That's what he's getting at there. He's not, he's not, he's not, this isn't Mormon theology here where we're eventually going to become God's capital G. He's speaking about the image of God in all people. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's talking about glorified man in his perfected state. Or else, a whore and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of those destinations. Think about that. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Listen to this next sentence. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Do you know that? Rome, as powerful as it is, is gone. You, dear friend, will live forever. America, as great as it is, will one day be gone. We, dear friends, will live forever in one of two places, either as an unimaginably glorious being or a whore that we cannot behold. Do you see that? Do you see that we're living amongst one another in this way? Do you see how beautiful the image of God is in each person. I'm sorry, I'm preaching. Let me just read Lewis. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal whores or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see what Lewis, Lewis I think, is hitting on this implication 
that we are together in this and when we see the gospel and we see in these heavenly shades of color, we see how glorious and how beautiful the Christian life is and how gracious we should be towards one another because everybody around you right now is in an intense battle for the glorification of God in their lives. And they've got struggles and pains and anxieties and worries and weaknesses. Oh, friends, that if you knew about them, it would break your heart. And you've got strengths and they've got strengths that each of us needs that when we put them together and we link arms and we fight this war together, but not as Christian Rambos, God does something beautiful in our lives. And he gives us grace and victory to keep pressing on until that day when we will be free of all this. Which then leads, I think, to the next point, and I'll wrap it up quickly here. Christians should live with a humble confidence. Christians should live with a humble confidence. If God is for us, I mean, we can't, we can't, we can't look at Romans 7 without sneaking into Romans 8. We can't, I can't do it. If God is for us, Romans 8, 31, who will be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give you all things? It is God who condemns. Who will condemn God's elect? It is Christ Jesus who justifies. What shall separate us then from the love of God? Shall tribulation or famine or sword or nakedness? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I'm in the middle of Romans chapter 7, but I flip one page and I know what the future holds. It's Romans 8 which says, nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So he has some purposes for me as I'm living in Romans 7 and I'm leaning forward to Romans 8. And so what should that produce in me? Humble confidence that he who began a good work in me will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. And how does he do that? Well, that's what we're coming around this table to, to remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that his body was broken for us to satisfy the holiness of God and to defeat the captivity of sin. And He gave us His righteousness, gave us His Spirit, made us new, transferred us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His Son, whom He loves, has promised, has seated us with Himself in heavenly places, and now leaves us here in this world to become who we already are, and to fight the war of sanctification so that collectively together we can be a kind of display of the beauty of Christ to an onlooking world. That's the point of Romans chapter 7, I think. And I can't wait till next week when we read Romans 8 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So are you sick and sore? weak and wounded, dear brother or sister in Christ, then come to the table. Examine yourselves, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Examine yourselves in light of this gospel. Don't come flippantly. Don't come without a sober-mindedness. Don't come 
still in a state of gospel amnesia, come, but come in all your weakness to Christ, who alone can make you and has made you right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for portions of the Bible like Romans 7. Thank you for giving us a picture of Abraham, who was a weak man in many ways, lied about his wife being his sister to save his own hide, but yet he was your man. Thank you for men like Jacob, who was deceitful and treacherous, robbed his brother of his father's blessing, but yet he's the type of guy, the type of man that you save. Thank you for David, who had a heart after yours, but yet was still capable of the height of human wickedness. Not only adultery, but murder to cover it up. But yet, he was your king in whom your soul delighted. Thank you for Peter, who even after all he had saw Jesus do, was scared of a little girl at a campfire and denied Christ. But yet, he was the rock on whom you built the church. Thank you for Saul, who we know of in the majority of the New Testament as Paul, who persecuted the church, who stood observing the stoning of one of your disciples, Stephen, who terrorized the early church, but who you, by your grace, knocked off his horse and opened his eyes to the beauty of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that these are the type of people you save, which gives us great hope. You save people like us. And you leave us here to work out our salvation so that we would show an onlook, so that through us, you might save others. So as we come to this table now, Lord, we don't come with our own righteousness, with our own week's worth of obedience, we come just as dependent today as the day that we first trusted in Jesus. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, who has delivered us from the tyranny of sin. And Lord, give us then strength by your Holy Spirit to walk in ever-increasing obedience, to become more and more who we already are as we leave this table. In Jesus' name, amen.